0: The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivalled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leaf, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're hunting wabbits. It's been 50 years last year since Richard Adams' children's classic Watership Down was published, and a new graphic novel adaptation is planned. Richard Adams unfortunately died in 2016, but I'm joined now by his daughters Juliet and Rosamond, who are as well the custodians of the flame. Juliet and Ros, welcome. Now, Watership Down, obviously, it's a huge monument in the canon of of literature for children and not quite children but it had its origins as many children's stories do in the author's stories he spun for his own children can you tell me do you remember the origins of Watership Down long before it was in print
1: yes we do indeed Um, the story was told to us as children on a long car journey on the way to Stratford-on-Avon And uh, we must have been about, what, five and
2: seven, six and eight? I was seven, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. So we were quite little. Our father used to take us every year to Stratford to see Shakespeare. And um, it was a long car journey in those days. There were no motorways. So driving from London to Stratford was quite a long trip. And we said, Daddy, tell us a story to pass the time. So he did. And um, that was how Watership Down started. He told us the story somewhat different from the book. It has to be said.
2: Whilst we were driving along to Stratford, we were we were in the habit of uh, being told stories on the way to school, but they were usually much shorter and uh, sort of almost more babyish. Uh, Watership Down was, it, 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 to start with, was actually also quite a babyish story, and the rabbits were much more anthropomorphic and less rabbity. It was only when he started writing it some while later that he, he got really into turning them into real rabbits and the whole thing sort of grew and, and gained and spun. But I do remember that was a hazel and fiver. I, 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 I remember that. And I remember that the rabbits dressed up they had to dress up to gain entrance to the warren that, that they wanted to get into. That, you know, we were very small, so it's amazing. I can remember even that. But uh, the, the rabbit law was that you had to offer hospitality to strangers, and so they had to look like real strangers in order to gain entrance.
0: <laughs> Extraordinary. And, I mean, how did it make its journey into print? Because the, the finished version, the artefact we know now, is, as you say... One of the things that's most extraordinary about it is that the rabbits really are quite rabbity. It's quite an adult story in lots of ways. And as I understand it, your father kind of rejected the idea that what he was writing was a children's story.
2: Yes,
1: he always said it was a story for anybody who wanted to read it. It was never written specifically as a children's story, it was a book for anybody. And I think its enormous appeal has proved that over the years. Because we used to get fan mail from all sorts of people of all ages and all types, it just had very broad
2: appeal. He didn't really believe in the distinction between children's and adults' books. He he said that a, a good book was worth reading by anybody.
0: And is it is it true that as as it seems to be widely said that it was at your urging. That he he turned it into something more than a car journey story.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I um I do remember this quite clearly. We were in the Lake District, and you know, bear in mind that Dad pushed us pretty hard. I mean, we had to, didn't we, Ros? We had to pass the exams, and we had to try and come near the top of the class, and this. Yes, we had to sing. Yeah, we had a lot to do. Yeah, we had to. We had to read Milton and all sorts. So we thought, okay, you know, let's make a few demands back. Dad was a great, great one for saying that he could do better when he was reading a book he didn't like. And I remember him throwing one book across the room and saying, well, this is total tosh. I'm not reading any more of this. Could do better than this with one hand tied behind my back. So I said to Roz, let's call him on it. <laughs> Let, let's, make him, let's make him actually do some writing for a change. And so we nagged and bullied. And in the end, we went off and bought some very cheap paper in Olverston Market where we happened to be on holiday and said, you know, look, we've spent our pocket money on the paper. Now get on and write.
0: (laughs) Did you have a sense, as he was writing it, of how his imagination took it in a different direction? Because I think I'm just fascinated by the way in which this, this story is, on the one hand, really realistic about rabbits, and on the other, absolutely kind of layered with mythological allusions and you know, epigraphs of Aeschylus and all sorts of, you know, there's so much going on in it.
1: Yes, there's an awful lot going on in it. And um, Daddy always said that he never made the rabbits do anything that rabbits physically couldn't do. I mean, for instance, that you know, they don't wear clothes. They don't use weapons. They don't eat off plates or use knives and forks or anything like that. So in one way, it's an anthropo- anthropomorphic story. And in another way, it's very naturalistic. And he drew a lot on a book called The Private Life of the Rabbit by R.M. Lockley, who subsequently became a close friend. And um, he studied rabbit behavior very closely so that he could make it as realistic as possible.
0: Yes. And, um, I mean, there's, there's details like you know rabbits reabsorbing fetuses into their wombs, which, again, doesn't seem like a, an obvious Beatrix Potter trope. <laughs> um, True. Th- did- they do. Under-stress. Yeah, and did did Lockley? I mean, how did that friendship come about? Was it did he sort of suddenly realise? Oh, I'm, I'm all over this hugely successful book. I must write to the author, or what? No, in that?
1: fact, my father wrote to him and said, "All kudos to you for supplying all the information that I needed so much." And because they were both naturalists and very keen on the environment and the natural world, they became firm friends, and um, travelled together, and birdwatched together, and. Even wrote a book together about the trip round the Antarctic that they did.
0: And your father, can I get a sense from you? I mean, obviously he was quite austere in wanting you to do well at school. But what was his character? What was he like as a father? And what what do you feel was in him that comes out in Watership Down that you can see? I
2: think Dad was enormously frustrated by not having picked. The, the right thing to do in life. You know, he, he was a very able man. He had an open scholarship to Oxford to read history. He was fivered for a first, which he wasn't given because he, I think he said he forgot about Edward III or something. I think now he'd have got a first without any question. You know, he was, he was was he was tipped for stardom and he went into the civil service, but he failed to progress in the way that he felt would have been appropriate. And I think, to be honest also, that the job, although he was quite good at it, didn't play to his strengths. A lot of his friends had been killed in the war. He'd done a lot of poetry in Oxford. He he was quite a good poet, and Stephen Spender wrote to him once and praised his work, said, keep going, this is good stuff, you know. And I think that as we grew up, he was suffering from that awful sense that middle-aged people sometimes get, that they've missed their way in life. And so I think Watership Down became the sort of unwitting lightning conductor for all this pent-up erudition and imagination and all the things that his job didn't feed on, you know, in his everyday life. And and he put into it everything that was in the, the what I like to think of as the sort of great compost heap of his mind and imagination. And that did include Aeschylus and also, you know, Dad was an incredibly well-read person, and he 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 knew about all sorts of books, and it all comes out. And of course, there are you know people say, "Oh gosh, you know, it's just really the story of the Iliad," or it's. It, it, but it, as he was fond of saying himself, you know, a lot of uh, there are only so many stories in the world, and and uh, he was a great fan of Joseph Campbell. The hero with a thousand faces, and incidentally, when he became famous, they invited him to speak at Joseph Campbell's birthday celebrations. And the other great fan of Joseph Campbell turned out to be George Lucas of Star Wars, who Dad got on with quite well, I believe.
0: <laughs> Extraordinary! Imagine the conversation between them. Did he actually did he get did he get on with these, Lucas? Did I
2: I, I don't know more than that. I'd be fabricating if I pretended I did not know. But perhaps George Lucas will tell us one day.
0: And. I mean, you mentioned his experience in the war. I mean, you know, one of the striking aspects of Watership Down is that they really do behave, you know, with their patrols and their infiltration and their mounting defences, like soldiers, these rabbits. You know, what did he go through in the war and how did that feed into Watership Down?
1: Um, I think he went through quite a lot in the war. He had many varied placements in many different places, Um, He was in Northern Ireland, he was in Palestine, he was in Copenhagen, he was in Holland. um, And I think he had many different experiences, and a lot of them played into the book. He saw quite brutal things, which are all told about in his autobiography, The Day Gone By. And I think it did affect him quite substantially. Although as children, he never really spoke much about what he saw in the war and what he did. He did used to tell us about sort of domestic situations, but he never really spoke about the actual experiences. Although he did say he never fired a gun in anger, so I don't know about that. But um, yes, I I, I think the war did influence him
2: very greatly. I think he was very struck by the idea. I've got a little diary he wrote when he was a very young man um, about 19 and he was quite shocked at the outbreak of war at the thought that his country could put them all into uniform and send them off to be killed and that was perfectly legitimate and just part of the furniture and I I think it, it it's probably an idea that a lot of young people now would also find very hard to get their heads around. You can be put into a uniform, picked up from whatever you're doing, sent off to try and blow people's heads off and potentially get your head blown off. Well, that's shocking, isn't it? No wonder he, you know, highly strong, highly imaginative person on the brink of of, of, of his uh, time at Oxford and bang, suddenly Hitler invades and that's that.
0: Do you think um, General Wundwerth, the 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 Novel's principal antagonist, you know, who runs a, a pretty fascistic rabbit Warren. Uh, do, do you think he was directly sort of analogous to Hitler, or do you do you see that as an underreading of the book?
2: You can put any dictator in there you like: Kim Jong Un, Putin, Stalin, Hitler, all the creeps and monsters we seem to have reaccumulated now. It's it's about.
0: Totalitarianism. Fascism. But he does give Woundwort a backstory. One of the things it seems to me kind of extraordinary about the book, because he's so true to rabbits, this kind of grizzled monster is, we learn, three years old. He's a rabbit.
2: (laughs) What do you want him to be, 80? (laughs) I mean, it doesn't matter really, does it? At the end of the day, we're all dead. And uh, some people don't seem to mind going to their graves having been responsible for the death of tens, hundreds, millions. Strange, isn't it? Do you,
0: do you think the mythological overlay of it, I mean, what, you know, he gives his rabbits a whole mythos, a sort of set of stories and, you know, about about the sort of trickster rabbit and the, you know, the black rabbit. I mean, what do you think he was doing there? Did you ever talk about, how he saw the architecture of the book and the sort of moral core of it.
1: Well, he never really discussed it in those terms, but I think that he was making the rabbit society as complex and interesting as he possibly could. I mean, the stories of Ella Frera, which in my view are absolutely integral to the book. The publishers didn't like them to start with, and that was one of the reasons they turned it down. They said it was far too... Complex and that the stories were a distraction from the main thrust of the book, the main storyline. And you know they might think about publishing it if he took out Elaferrar, but in my view and in many people's view, Elaferrar is absolutely pivotal to the whole thing. And the story of the Black Rabbit of Inlay and how how Elaferrar goes down there to save his people, I think, is one
2: of the most brilliant pieces of writing he ever did. Dad was fascinated by the nature of religion and how religions came into being. And in one of his other books, *Shardik*, is sort of addresses that, not directly, but it, that's what it's really about. It: how do we come up with these great myths? What is it about them that invests us with hope? And you know, what is the nature of the power in there? And why do all societies and all peoples need something to comfort them along this? Human path, and I think Ellafrrar is a, is an actually extraordinary attempt to some sort of make sense of life and death and give the poor rabbit something to look to when they're in trouble it 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 we had endless difficulty because filmmakers always want to make the black rabbit a sort of synonym for death, and you know at the end, along well, comes the black rabbit to take Hazel. Well, no, you see it's much cleverer than that because Ella Frera is the the sort of the, the, the yin of the black rabbit yang or whatever, you know, he's, he's the equal and opposite. And the, the the thing that comes to take Hazel at the end of the book is El Hara. and that's terribly important because it's much more hopeful and gives gives you a, a more comfort when Hazel dies. So I'm glad to say that in the graphic novel, you will find that uh, although it's never made absolutely explicit, Joe has done a splendid job of having Elefraera come to take Hazel to join his Arslaw, and that's the way we like it, isn't it, Ros? Absolutely, and
1: it's very clear in the book. He recognises Elefraera by the fact that he has starlight ears, and those ears were given to him when his own ears were torn off, and uh, Frith gave him back his ears and put a, a little bit of starlight in them. So that everybody would know who he was. And it's quite clear at the end of the book. And I think it's a very moving section. It's a beautiful ending and perfectly
0: fitting. Oh, it's impossible to read really the ending of that book without dabbing at your eyes. In a tear. <laughs> uh, with this graphic novel adaptation, I mean, you know, it's a matter of public record that there was a lot of um, bad feeling after the, the now famous film. Were you a bit once bitten, twice shy about? About the rights, what gave you confidence this time round to, you know, license that adaptation?
2: Well, we, we got to choose the adapter and the, in um, particularly the illustrator ourselves, and we had a wonderful time with them. We um, we had them over to the to England, and we walked for three days. The all the all the places that everything happens in the book, for they're all real and it rained and rained and rained and we got soaked and joe fell in the river and dropped his camera in after him <laughs> however i mean you know the, the the thing is that the 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 graphic novel it's absolutely what it looks like when you go there in all respects and it, it that's great it looks so beautiful
1: yeah they worked very hard to make it as near the real thing as they possibly could And um, if you see the photographs and compare them to the book, it it is quite clear that that is exactly where it is. I mean, the illustration of the railway arch, for instance, is absolutely spot on. As is the river. They really are
2: lovely, lovely pictures. And what what was quite fun actually was that um, they'd never been to England before. They didn't. I don't think they knew quite what they were going to get. And I didn't want it to look like Ohio farmland, because Joe is a countryman. I'm very He's got rabbits all over his own property, but he lives in Ohio. So we didn't want
0: it to start looking wrong, you know. It is very sort of English in its setting. And your father was really careful, wasn't he? To be precise, the place where it's set, you know, Nuthanger Farm and all the areas around it are sort of geographically very exact to originals, aren't they? Why did you do that rather than just, as it were, making it up out of whole cloth or whole turf?
1: I think that part of the country where he was born and brought up, he was born at Wash Common, just outside Newbury, which in those days was a lot more rural, but I think he was very, very fond of that area of the country and he wanted to write a story about it. He wanted to bring it to life and make it accessible to as many people as possible. He was very, very fond of the area and I have to say Watership Down itself is absolutely beautiful. You can walk along the ridge... And look out over the view of the farmland below. It's absolutely wonderful English countryside, and uh, long may it continue to be so. Is, is it is
0: it kind of overrun with tourists and blue plaques now, or do, is it is it not so much a site of pilgrimage?
1: No, it it isn't overrun with tourists and blue plaques. There is a tree up there planted in uh, memory of my father, and. Up on the very top where the warren was, there used to be a big beech tree which had Hazel and Fiverr's names carved in the bark, but that unfortunately blew down in the great gale of 87. So, no,
0: as you've said, he stuck to his guns when, in including the mythological material and the story of Ephraim. Did you, I mean, when it did come to be published and it did come to be a huge success, do you remember? That I mean, was that sort of life-changing? Was it disconcerting? Was he sort of surprised that this extraordinarily strange, quite personal book found such a large audience?
1: Yes. I mean, you have to remember, it was a pretty slow burn. It came out in 72 and nothing much really happened for about a year. And then gradually we started getting these extraordinary press notices in the UK it was very hard to get hold of the book because Rex Collins, who published it, was a one-man band and he only published
2: a very small number. Uh, I can't remember how many it was, Julie. How many was it? I can't remember, but, you know, not enough. I mean, 1,500 or... Well, people were saying, you know, we want to read this book, but we can't get hold of it.
1: And so it. it although it was a, a sellout... It never really took off until it went to Puffin and was published in paperback because they produced an enormous number of copies and suddenly the whole thing went stratospheric. Then, of course, it crossed the Atlantic and it, it became even more of a sensation. So, yes, it did change things dramatically after about a year and a half. By the time I was
0: 14, the place had gone completely mad. <laughs> and did, how, did you sort of, I mean, find... The, the the business we've got growing up I mean a lot of the the children of writers who who write for children or, or write books that are loved by children so not to not to pigeonhole your father often sort of slightly <laughs> struggle with it I'm mean, thinking of you know Vivian Burnett didn't love little Lord Fauntleroy as his life went on and you know Alice little was always the original to Alice did you know was it something that hung over you or, or a kind of not well, we were
2: we were lucky, weren't we? Because we weren't in the book; it was dedicated to us. But it, we weren't we weren't in the book as children, and also, I mean, by the time it really took off, we were we were teenagers, and Ros was caught up in it slightly more than I was. I think it's fair to say. But I I remember um, going off to Oxford and thinking, well, you know, let's leave him to it, sort of thing.
1: Yes, it was it was tricky because. By the time it really took off, all the press wanted us to be two little girls, and we weren't really two little girls. We were two bolshy teenagers. <laughs> That's true. And holding pictures of cuddly bummies and, you know, saying, oh, Daddy, we love you so much and all that stuff, which
2: was rather what they tried to do. And of course, we kicked back quite fiercely. I remember one guy went the other way and he posed us as nymphettes in sort of um, Fleetwood Mac long dangly dresses. Amongst toadstools, looking like a couple of white witches. And my mother hated the picture so much, she burned it. <laughs> I, I, I haven't seen it for years. It was, I, we looked lovely, but it, we certainly weren't little girls in that picture.
0: Was it, Was your dad pleased by the success? Or, I mean, did he he fi- think i like vindicated, or was it like, oh God, now I'm the rabbit guy for the rest of my life?
2: No, he was thrilled. He was thrilled. The first thing he did was quit the civil service. <laughs> uh, he loved the limelight it's fair to say he
1: couldn't have been happier he had a wonderful time i mean he traveled the world everywhere he went people fell over themselves he stayed in the most expensive hotels and rode rode around in limousines to different television stations in the u.s and well, no, he, he absolutely loved it who wouldn't i mean he expected he'd be sitting at a desk in the civil service for the rest of
2: his life and look what happened he had a sort of what i mean in those days i don't know it's all stopped now but in those days Authors used to be sent out on promotional tours, like, like rock stars, and they got the Rolls-Royce treatment.
0: And was was he under tremendous pressure to publish more Rabbit stories? I mean, he wrote an awful lot else, but it took a long time for him to get back to Watership Down, didn't it?
1: Yes, yes. They were always really pressurising him, and he was always saying, no, Watership Down is a story, that's the end, there's no more. Hazel's
2: dead.
0: No, spoiler alert, um, but he did return to it. Was that just eventually enough people sort of put, put their foot on his neck in the publishing world, or did he he sort of have a moment where he thought, you know, what, well, I can return to this world?
1: Mm, I don't know about that. Um, I, would, I would say he probably was somewhat pressurised into writing more stories. I don't really know. I was older when he wrote that and I wasn't really
2: in touch with it at the time. He was in his 80s by then. And actually, I'd say a good half of Tales from Watership Down, which is what he wrote, are further stories of Elefraera, which are rather good, actually. Some of them are quite trippy, almost. I think it's a nice addition, I must say, to, to, to the book. But he got round the the problem that the story was complete by... Doing little little sort of prequel sequel stories and and extending the elra repertoire There's,
0: I mean there's a peculiar kind of wrinkle in the reception of it that some people have complained that you know the does don't get a fair look in here, which m- might be down to rabbits down to, than, rather than down to your father, but how did that i mean did he, did he feel? Under siege about that, or you know, the idea it was anti-feminist.
2: He he took that criticism and addressed it. He he, you know, the, the, the original story, after all, is a story of really, it's a story about war and about males in a wartime situation under pressure. I think you've got to recognize, you know, he didn't like one to say that, but there's no question that this influenced his thinking very much. In tales, Heisen'sley becomes the chief rabbit, and uh, you know. I think I think Dad did well. Obviously, with us two clamouring at him, he had to do quite a lot of thinking about the changing role of women in society. And he was very ambitious for us, and and and, and encouraged and promoted our working lives. So, you know, he 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 was not lost to the developments of our time, shall we say.
0: Do you think the, the, the sort of vast number of, if you like, the sort of mythos that's carried on from it, including, I guess, that film, has in any way occluded in the public eye what the original book is? I mean, do you feel sort of annoyance at that?
1: No, I don't think so. Um, and it was very interesting on the 50th anniversary, the amount of publicity we got that was purely and simply about the book and what it meant to people, and people were still saying the same thing after 50 years. I loved this book as a child. It was part of my childhood. Um, My father read this to me when I was 12, and he's dead now, and I still remember him reading it to me. People have incredibly fond memories of the book, and it obviously is very deeply rooted in many people's psyche, and I think deservedly so, because it is an absolute classic.
2: We had one letter when dad died from somebody in America who said, I, I just thought I had to write on the death of your father to let you know how this book saved my sanity years ago when my parents got divorced. And it was such a beautiful letter. I, I You know, the, the book had been in the New York Times bestseller list for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks on its own right. Yeah.
0: Do you... Do you have children yourselves? Do you? Do you? Did did your children appreciate Watership Down? I mean, do you think it's it's it lives in each generation that way? They've
2: all read it, I think. Yeah, we're on to grandchildren now. <laughs> Hopefully, they'll read it too. Yeah, they're all a bit little at the moment, but um, I would expect them to read it. Yes, I mean, it's not a a doddle to read, but it's one of those books you get. As long as you you, you dig it your way in in the first few chapters and, and keep going, it it grabs you. Yeah, certainly does.
0: Did, um, and I mean, it's your father's own childhood because I th- in, in a brief conversation we had ahead of this podcast, Juliet, you were saying, which really snagged my attention, you thought that actually the countryside he was describing was a countryside that had to some extent vanished even by the time he was writing the book.
2: Not so much the countryside, although God knows that's under pressure. I'm very concerned about the wildlife, the birds, the bugs. When I, I mean, even in my lifetime, never mind dads. uh, I remember in the 60s, the soldier beetles all over the grasses in the high summer. They're the little orange guys who mate all over. They're in the book somewhere. There used to be hundreds of those. Now you're lucky if you see one or two that like some other things they're hanging on the hedgehogs are still good in the isle of man but you know the plovers do you, you remember ros when we used to go and walk up the ridge wave up from the cottage there was a field full of plovers that they have gone they're not there anymore and you know, nobody seems to notice it, it nobody in this oh gosh you know we've got the house the tree sparrows are in trouble now or and then everyone goes, Ugh. and then they all sort of go back to their office, and and nobody really seems to get what it means. It, it, it's so distressing. It's like we're destroying the Garden of Eden without really even looking
0: up from our plastic bottles. Well, your father certainly was a sort. Of, I mean, I think you could say a sort of an environmentalist and a, and a um, and someone interested in animal rights before those conquered the mainstream. Did you? I mean, he lived long enough. Um, So you could probably tell me, did he get a sense of vindication as these concerns started to come front and centre?
1: I don't think it would have been a sense of vindication, but you have to remember my father was very old by the time he died, so he was somewhat out of touch by the end of his life. I think he would have been appalled now at the state that we're in, and I think he would have been very, very sad. He was very sad back at the top of his game with things like the... Harp seal hunt in Canada. He felt that was a terrible injustice to the animal world. And um, he also didn't like the fact that so many animals were farmed for fur. He thought that was very unfair and a terrible misuse of the animal kingdom. And he fought very strongly against these things. So I'm quite sure that he would have been very distressed by the state of the situation now and by the development that's going on around all of the country these days and particularly at Newbury where Sandalford Warren has been okayed now for building so where Watership Down actually begins will now go under a housing estate and nothing can stop it because the government has put it through and I think that's terribly sad and horribly prophetic in the book that that's what happened and
2: and now it's coming true. Where housing ministers take contributions to their their campaigns from property developers, things are not going well.
0: That's sort of chilling that, that Fiverr's premonition has come true, isn't it?
2: Ooh, it's horrible.
0: And so, when does the graphic novel come out, I should just say for our listeners before we.
2: I believe it's the 17th of October. 17th of yeah, October. The UK so. the 17, is it. The, One of them's the 17th, and I think America's the 19th.
0: Well, any day now. So, listeners, read Watership Down and then read the graphic novel.
2: Um, Or For little people, they could start with a graphic novel, and our great hope is it will inspire them to move on to the novel itself, perhaps when they're a bit older. But it really is terrific.
0: The the novel itself will live forever. Um, Juliet and Rosamond, thank you very much indeed for your time.